up next on the Parth and Pratham show. Sitting there in that hearing, listening for hours to the number of people coming in and talking about their own experiences with use of force at the hands of law enforcement in California was eye-opening to say the least. I, I knew, but listening hour after hour was just, it's a moment. It's a part and Pratham show. Okay, Assemblywoman, um, tell us about yourself. Do you have any favorite hobbies? Ooh, that's a good one. So I have three children. I have a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a 10-year-old. So I'd say these days, my favorite hobbies are definitely things I can do with them. And I think the top of our list these days is definitely hiking and being out in our beautiful open spaces and getting to enjoy the air. And it's just, we have some wonderful places to explore. Yeah, for sure. So let's get more into your like educational history. Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to college? And specifically in college, what did you major in? So I'm a Bay Area native. I grew up on the peninsula and went to Menlo Atherton High School. Um, go Bears. And then I went off to the East Coast for my college and eventually law school and went to the University of Pennsylvania where I majored in psychology, which tends to surprise people because I didn't become a psychologist, but it was a great social science major that I loved studying. Did you do any uh, education after that? I think I've read in your bio you went to Georgetown? Yeah, I graduated. Um, I got my law degree at Georgetown University Law Center after college. So speaking about um, maybe your younger life, you eventually transitioned into politics. What was that transition like? Yeah, so I never expected to be a politician. I definitely, it's funny, I talk to people these days who are your age who say, I wanna go into politics, and that wasn't my trajectory, if you will. Uh, But I have always been a super passionate person. So I became a lawyer, because I really, um, I fell in love with the tool of the law and the way it can make change in people's lives and um, spent many years being a lawyer. And then my move into politics came after the 2016 election. I, like many people, realized that um, the government wasn't doing the things that I felt like were in line with my values. And as a mom, I felt like climate change was really critical to me. I mean, my children are gonna inherit this earth. I think that they deserve at the very least air they can breathe and water they can drink and a world they can inhabit. And I wasn't happy with what the government was going to do about climate change and the rollback policy. And as an environmental lawyer, I decided that if we want something fixed, we got to step up and do it ourselves. And so it was time to get into government and try to impact policy and law. So that's really awesome. So you talked about the specific causes that you're really passionate about. I think I was just reading your bio quickly. You, uh, you're on a board about women's reproductive health. That's what I read about. Uh, you have some bills about gun safety and also the environment. I also read that you were doing uh, law work for immigrants, right? Is this true? And so these are all causes that you believe in. Can you tell me more about where this love started and how you started championing these causes? Yeah, so um, all of them come, I guess, from different places. We can start a little bit with immigration because it's a story that I, I'm really proud of. So I, like many Americans, come from a family of immigrants. Um, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. I lost my grandmother actually just a little over a year ago at almost 98 years old. She was an incredible, incredible woman. Um, and they came here 
1939, in the middle of um, the Nazi occupation of Austria. And this country gave my family a second chance. And I was raised knowing that and knowing the value of being an American and being given that chance at life in a very real and meaningful way. And my whole family, my father was the first in his family to go to college. His parents were both kicked out of high school for being Jewish in Vienna. And, uh, you know, he went on to be a physicist and is one of the founders of Silicon Valley and really felt like he needed to invest in our community and our country. And we were raised, my siblings and I were raised to do the same. And so immigration, I had run my firm's pro bono program in San Francisco when I was there. And immigration is something I had touched on, but hadn't actually done a ton of work on. But when the Muslim ban came down, I couldn't stand for it. I mean, my family came to the shores as refugees. And um, Jews in the Holocaust that were turned away um, and sent back to Europe were killed, right? So I knew that if my family would have been turned away, that would have likely been the outcome for my family and I wouldn't be here. And so to have a moment in our history where I was standing as a lawyer knowing that the fundamental values of this country, are we were turning our backs on them and that people would be turned away, refugees seeking safety in our nation, I, I knew I had to step up. And so... Um, part of what I think you read about was I, um, using my old connections from when I coordinated pro bono, I coordinated the legal response in San Francisco in the wake of the Muslim ban. And it was an amazing moment, just full circle, to watch people arriving as my grandparents had and knowing that I was fighting alongside my fellow lawyers to give them that chance at a second chance that I had. And so it's something I'm just really passionate about because I believe immigrants are what make this country what it is. And we need to continue to hold that as a value that is core to who we are. But these bills have been, people have been trying to get um, these bills passed for these minorities um, for a long time. So maybe what different approach are you taking to help permanently? I love that. And I think that the, the issue that I often tell people, the most surprising, one of the most surprising things getting to Sacramento and becoming um, a legislator is that our state, my community, the communities across this state care deeply about climate change. They believe that we need to be doing what is right for the environment and that that should be a priority. And the hardest bills to get through Sacramento are in the environmental bills. So to your point, people have been trying for a long time to fight climate change. And here I am saying that I'm gonna go and I'm gonna fight for our climate and make a difference. And it's really hard and people have been trying really hard. And so, you know, one of the things that I think makes me uniquely suited to do this is my background. So I spent seven years practicing law and one of my specialties was environmental regulatory law. And so I sort of bring a level of expertise in the law itself that is different than a lot of my colleagues and I think helps me navigate it in a way. Um, but also in that work, what I did was I represented companies. And so these often were companies that needed help with compliance, making sure they were doing the right thing by our air and our water, and I helped them get there. And I think it is also understanding the balance of, yes, we need an economy that works. We need companies that can thrive. And they can do that while protecting our air and our water. And so how do we bring it all together to make sure we're doing it right by our climate and allowing our economy to thrive. And I don't think the two things are separate. And so I think it's bringing that conversation together. But at the end of the day, knowing that our number one value has to be protecting our climate for future generations. Um, but I can't do it alone. I'm in a legislature with 120 members and we have to build coalition and that's part of the goal, is working together, working with our communities to advocate for these things that we care so deeply about and moving those bills forward. So it's a long fight, but being a part of it is really important. So you talked about how it's hard and a lot of people have been trying this for a long time, but it's just 
one of those issues that doesn't seem to get bipartisan support and just pass through to the next level, right? And so we want to know more about your decision-making process. How do you decide if you want to support a bill or go against the bill? Ooh, that's such a good question. So, um, you know, when I ran for office and now in office, I've always talked about values. I think that the thing that should drive each of us are our values and who we are and what we believe in. And I think that we should elect people who represent our values and who we know will go into elected office at every level of government and make decisions from a place of their values. Because we can't predict what problems are going to come up and what decisions we're going to have to make. I mean, when I got elected, who would have thought that I'd be deciding about distance learning, right? <laughs> you know, things come up that yep. we can't predict. And so I was elected, I believe, because people trusted my values and trusted where I come from and that I will make the right decisions for the next generation and for our community. And so I always, always stay loyal to, to that, to my values and to what I believe are the values of this community and doing what is right by the community because I think that is critical. Um, the hard part, though, in that is that bills are often not black and white, right? They're not one little issue, right? There's several things in there, many of which sometimes I agree with, some of which I don't agree with, right? So do I go ahead and support it to move the ball on the things I agree with, or do I not support it because I don't like the other parts? So often we are very much in gray area when we're making decisions on policy, um, and I think it really is about moving the ball. I mean, we can talk about um, bail reform is, I think, a great example of a bill that was passed before I was in the legislature, but was not ideal the way that bill was written, but really, really moved the ball forward in making sure that we are making those decisions based on the community safety and not on one's ability to pay, which obviously should be how we're deciding who should be kept on bail and who should not. And again, the bill wasn't perfect, but are we moving the ball in the right direction toward equity or toward protecting the environment or toward whatever the value is? Um, is important, but then being a part of the discussion, trying to get the policy better, trying to make sure it moves us in the right direction and as far as we can. Um, but I'll add a really important part of that, which is I'm a public servant, right? That's what this role is. My job is to represent this community and the 500,000 people who have elected me. And so critical in my decision-making is hearing from all of my constituents who are engaged and call me and write me and want to meet with me. And I love that because I do want to hear what all of you think. Because as I said, I want to stay true to my values, but also the values of the community. So the more input I get and that I can listen to and that I can incorporate into my decision-making, the better. So that's really important. Um, and we do every time somebody calls or contacts, that is processed. And um, I've had the opportunity for people in my office to show actually how easy it is for me to see that. When I'm on a bill um, on our electronic system, it shows me every single person who has contacted me, pro and con, on a piece of legislation. So it's at my fingertips. I can know what my community is thinking. So please be a part of that decision-making because it's important. So the part you talked about values, right? And that really like, because that really, I don't know, because right now in the current political climate in America, people vote not based on their values and what they believe in, but what they disagree with and they want to mm -hmm. vote against it. And the bipartisan, or the, just the partisan climate in America is just, I don't know, it's kind of scary. And so I like how you talk about values and voting for what you believe is right. Because at the end of the day, those are the people who are going to make the decisions. You need to trust the people that are there. So make informed choices, learn about the policies, and make sure that you understand who the person is that you're voting for. Very cool. I know you guys are much younger than I am. But there was a time when that was true. I mean, I talk a lot about climate change, but 
the EPA was started by a Republican president. Like, let's not forget that there was a time in our history where these core values, right, a core value of protecting the world that we inhabit was not a partisan issue. I mean, sure, I would say the parties probably had different pathways that they would take to getting to that value. But fundamentally, we agreed that we should protect the environment, we should provide quality education to all children, that, you know, equity was important. And then within that, sure, I mean, there's disagreement I think is healthy, but, um, but we need, I so agree with you that we need to get back to that place of what are our shared values, right? And how do we get to, to moving policy in the direction that makes our community better? Because I think many of those values are what would make us stronger. Exactly. We need to come together, not split apart. Yeah. yeah. To your point about you've, you've done so much work on um, the floor getting bills passed specifically about the environment among the other issues. Um, so maybe how, on average, how long does it take to have a bill passed from like start to the time it's implemented? Like what's the time frame? So if it's an easy bill, if you will, if it's something that you're gonna get a lot of support on, um, then it can be about nine months. So we do bill introductions in January and then we finish our session around September, depends on um, our year, on election years, we finish a little earlier than non election years. Um, so it takes nine months for it to get through the legislative process, and then the governor has another month or so to sign the bills or veto them. So it takes about 10 months for it to get um, signed into law, and then it becomes law that January. Um, so from introduction to being enacted is a year, um, but that's an easy bill, right? So there are definitely bills that get through the legislature that take three, four years to get, to build the coalition, to get the policy right, and to um, get it enacted into law. So it can be, um, it can be as short as a year, or it can be much, much longer, depending on how much, um, how much change it is. I mean, we have bills, I had a bill this year that probably was my top priority. It didn't make it this year, COVID being a huge part of that, but I don't know that I, I don't know that it would have made it this year. It was such a huge change, but it was something that we will reintroduce, and we will continue the conversation, and we will continue to push on. Yeah. Um, so what does your typical day look like? Maybe when things were normal, what, what, at what times are you at the Capitol or what times are you in your own district? What's a typical day look like for you? So during sessions, so when we're actually having committee hearings and, um, and floor session, we are there four days a week. I'm in the Capitol Monday through Thursday, and then I'm in the district office in San Ramon on Fridays, meeting with constituents, and Thursday afternoons, too. We finish up midday on Thursdays. My colleagues from Southern California have to fly back. Um, but we, and those days are spent listening. I mean, most of my day is listening, listening to constituents, listening to interested parties on bills I'm carrying on other bills, trying to figure out sort of what what are all the opinions, what are the thoughts, and how can this policy shake out to really meet the needs of all Californians. And then um, usually we're in on the floor of the assembly on Mondays and Thursdays, and um, that time is spent, you know, moving legislation along in the process. And then we have committee hearings um, Monday through Thursday, where we um, are in smaller groups hearing just bills on the code sections we're experts on. And in those hearings, um, we go in much more depth. So any constituent, anybody in the state can show up and testify and say what they think about the bill. So those can run on big issues. I've heard bills for one bill for five hours. We've had so many people show up and want to give testimony. Um, we also hear from experts. We get to ask them questions. We get to talk about amendments, what the good policy is, and then it gets a vote. And if it gets a majority, it moves to the floor. Um, so that's most of our week is really working on policy. And then Thursday and Friday afternoons, I'm here 
in the district listening to constituents and to constituent groups about what are, what are you thinking about? What are the issues you guys care about? What should we be working on to really meet the needs of the local district? Um, and then it's implementing those the other days of the week. Okay, so that's a pretty packed schedule. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. But now that there's more issues going on, right, your schedule would have to change. So COVID-19, but we also want to ask you more about how the California Assembly adapts and changes and creates policies to go with social causes. So we want to talk more about the BLM protest, right? And so what, if so, were there any changes that were made to any legislature or any more bills that were added as a result of the protest? And how can you ensure that these things change for the long run? Yeah, it's a good question. I want to, you know, the, the death of George Floyd and the deaths of many, you know, um, people of color that have really brought the Black Lives Movement to the forefront has woken people up in a way that they were not before. Um, but the events aren't new, right? I mean, these were happening before we woke up and started these protests. And so this is an issue that um, we've been working on as a legislature prior to the recent protests. Um, you know, last year we passed the um, strongest use of force law in the nation um, before this movement started, but it was still necessary. And actually that was the bill I referenced. We started hearing the bill at 8.30 in the morning. We had to take a lunch break because there were more um, people who wanted to testify and sitting there in that hearing, listening for hours to the number of people coming in and talking about their own experiences with use of force at the hands of law enforcement in California was eye-opening to say the least. I, I knew, but listening hour after hour was just, it's a moment. It's a moment you can't forget, right? And that bill, we passed that bill with bipartisan support. Um, we were able to bring law enforcement along to end up supporting the bill, knowing that they too want you know, people to be treated fairly and they want trust right? They want people to trust law enforcement. That is really the best thing for all of our communities. And we need to work to get there. And we're not there right now, as we all know. Um, but it's, a, it's absolutely, there's so much more work to be done, to your point. So yes, many bills were amended after um, the Black Lives Movement protests. Um, you know, the chokehold, right, which became really a serious question after watching that George Floyd video that, again, a moment that changes you. I don't know how you can watch that and not be changed by the horrific nature of his murder. Um, and now we have a bill moving that will ban the chokehold statewide. Now, many, many departments in the state already ban them, but not all. And so just a statewide policy to ban them. Um, so that's a really incredible bill that already has bipartisan support. I'm a co-author of, um, you know, that bill I believe will move and will um, hopefully be signed into law. Um, it is, I think, sitting in the Senate right now. Um, so it's halfway through the process. And, um, but there were other bills, you know, there's been discussion about rubber bullets, right? The protests themselves raised questions about what is the appropriate use of rubber bullets and how do we look at that and change it, given, um, you know, we saw people injured in really meaningful ways while their First yeah. Amendment right was all they were doing was out there speaking. So um, I believe there's a bill moving on that as well. Um, there was a bill that did not make it last year on oversight of the sheriff. Um, it was a bill I had supported last year, but didn't make it through the Senate um, that is now revived. 
and I think has sort of a new energy around it given what um, given what is happening. So issues we were talking about, but maybe there wasn't enough support for, I think now there is support. Uh, one of the things that came before me last year um, that was a really fascinating conversation that now more people I think know about than before is um, the Police Bill of Rights, which is a really fascinating law that gives police a lot of rights when it comes to investigations into misconduct. And the bill that was before us at the time was an expansion of the Bill of Rights, an expansion that I didn't think was appropriate. I thought it would actually make it easier for police that had um, not done the right thing to get away with it, and I didn't support the bill, but um, it wasn't a robust conversation in the way it should have been, and I think that has shifted. And I think now hopefully we will reevaluate that to make sure that the police officers who aren't doing the right thing are not in our departments. We want police who are there keeping our community safe, but not harming um, people of color in any way, shape, or form. So I think a lot is moving, but I want to add here that we are doing a lot. We will keep focused. I think we will make a lot of changes at the state level, but local communities have a lot of power in this, right? Your city councils, the county board of supervisors, the sheriff oversee those budgets, right? And we um, we don't at the state level, right? So, so for some of this change, and I think it's something actually I had been talking about with a lot of our police departments before all of this was mental health services. So when someone is in a mental health crisis, it is the police they call because it's the only person to call, right? And so the police respond, they aren't trained to respond. They don't feel like they're the right people to respond, but there's nobody else to respond. And so we need to be looking at what is the need of the community and how are we meeting it? And maybe law enforcement isn't the right group to be meeting it at all times. Um, you know, maybe law enforcement needs to be there to make sure that they're safe. You know, domestic violence being an important place where law enforcement presence, I think so, there's a lot of people are killed in domestic violence and their presence might be needed, but maybe a second person there who's trained on domestic violence would really change the dynamic in that response. Um, and so a conversation about how are we spending our money? Who's responding? I mean, homelessness, right? Our cops spend a significant amount of time responding to homelessness. Are they the appropriate person? Um, you know, the core teams in Contra Costa are doing a great job at that. How do we make sure they're the ones responding? So I think we need to look at our budgets, really asking the question of who is the appropriate person to respond and how do we better meet the needs of our community because I don't think we're meeting their needs right now in all the ways. I actually like that idea and I haven't heard this idea before but it's really interesting instead of having because when you have any problem right your first response is call 911 call 911. I like the idea of having different specialized services within 911 in districts to have the money available to like target different like situations which need different types of responses. So that's a really interesting idea. And I will definitely be following up on that. Very cool. And education can also go a long way into knowing what service to call and are the cops really the best options in certain scenarios. So now when you were describing um, the process of a bill and meeting with your constituents, it seems like listening is a really essential skill that you need. Um, District 16, look, district you represent, has a very diverse population due to its recent expansion. Um, what is the California state government doing to foster a feeling of equality and belonging in the community? Mm, I love that question. And it's so important. And I think we see it. I mean, I know I keep talking about local government, but I'm going to talk about it again. <laughs> I think it's so important that represent, representation matters. And I want to say that, you know, our city councils don't always reflect the community they represent, right? And our legislature 
doesn't reflect the state of Cal the diversity of California. We had our first, when I was elected, our first Native American in history of California was elected with me. Um, you know, but if you look at the diversity of California, we we don't meet it at all, right? I mean, 30% women, not enough minorities, et cetera. So we need to make sure that we reflect the community, right? We need to elect people who look like us, who've lived our experiences, and we need to make sure that in everybody, and we talk about the value of this in corporations often, right? Diverse teams make better decisions, and that's true of government too. So I think it's really critical that we work to make sure that our government is as diverse as our communities, um, and that's true locally, and I'd love to see our, our city councils really reflect the amazing diversity of this community, and as you mentioned, how it's changed, because it has. Um, but I think so, and critical to that, I'm not going to fail to mention it right now, is the census, which is happening right now and um, is really, really important that everyone get counted because it does, it helps us meet the need, know who's in our community and then meet those needs. So if you have not filled out your census, go online and do it. Being counted is really critical. Although I have to say, Assembly District 16 is winning. We have the highest count in the state. So go team, um, but make sure you all get counted. And the Tri-Valley is where we need a few more people to go get counted. So um, that's really important. And then it is, it's inviting people into the conversation, right? Um, you know, I think there are certain populations who are used to being the people who call and who are listened to, right? And it's a minority of the people I represent. And so making sure that we are out there seeking opportunities to hear from other constituencies and letting them know I'm here, I wanna hear from you, right? And so that's doing community meetings, just letting people know I'm, I'm in pre-COVID times, we did community coffees. So um, three times a month, I was out in the community at a coffee shop and people could just come home and show up and talk to me. And we did our best to make sure that people knew that was happening. We're still doing those online. We have office hours that you can come to in Zoom rooms um, and also town halls that we're doing online. But, you know, making sure that people understand that we're here to listen, we're here to support you, you know, touching base with community groups. I want to, I mean, Apapa is one of an incredible community group that represents, um, you know, the Asian Pacific Islander community that making sure that they're out there telling people, call, speak to your assembly member, tell her what you think. Um, so please spread that word because we do want to hear from everybody um, that I represent and that includes the diverse folks. Okay, so for our last two questions, our first one will be about COVID and then our second one will be on the upcoming election, okay? So for COVID, we wanna know more about Calif the California state government's response, because I know they've spent a lot of money. I think it's the highest amount of money that has been spent by all the states. I don't know, check me if I'm right, but- We are the biggest. What, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so what is like the full response that they've had? And as the second wave comes and affects California almost the most out of all the states, what are additional protocols and things that are happening? Just really quick. Yeah, so really quick. I mean, I think the role of the state here is to fill the gaps. The gaps being left by the federal government, which are vast, and, um, and then support our local governments in what they need. So as, as you have seen, our county departments of public health have really stepped up in providing testing and um, orders to keep us safe. And so for us, it's how we get you the PPE you need. How do we get you the testing kits we need? Setting up testing sites, setting up alternate um, care sites if our hospitals were to become overwhelmed, um, providing more volunteers where we're able to. Um, and then our small businesses have really needed significant support. Most of that has come from the federal government, but where they left gaps, we stepped in and filled those gaps and want to continue to. So just making sure that our communities as a whole are cared for and, and really we're paying attention. Education, 
uh, making sure that we're providing our schools with the resources they need to get back and to get back safely, whether it be, you know, filling the digital divide, getting our students the desk, the laptops and the Wi-Fi they need, or the PPE teachers are going to need to get kids back in the classroom. So, you know, we sort of serve a support role, which is why you look at the dollars and you see how much we spent. But with 40 million Californians, it takes a lot to get those testing kits, get that PPE, make sure our community is as safe as possible. And public health is primary. Right? We want to make sure people are well taken care of and safe. And then we also want to set ourselves up for a successful economic recovery on the backside of the COVID crisis. So that's also something why we want to hold our small businesses up, make sure that they are here when the crisis is over. Awesome. For this last question, I'm, it's going to be really quick. I just want to refer back to the beginning of the interview when we were talking about how long it takes a bill to get passed. You said it could take four years on very divisive ones. So then it occurred to me, that is it possible some people may start a bill, but they might not have been reelected to come and finish the bill. So I just wanted to know, how does one balance their duty to help the public while also having to face an election coming up in a couple of months? I think when you do your duty to the public, then the public will reelect you. I mean, that's my position. I was elected to serve the community. I will serve the community and I trust that if I represent, as we talked about values in the beginning, and I'll bring it back there because it's the thing I love to talk about. If I represent the values of this community, I stand for them and I do what I believe is right. I, I won't always get it right, but I'll do my best that the community will reelect me. And so to me, it's not about campaigning or whatever. It's about doing my job and doing it well. So this community wants me to continue to do it. And every two years they get the chance to decide. So. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. We had a great time talking to you. And yeah, that's about it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for doing this. I love talking to you. And I love how you're engaging with so many local leaders to get, you know, people more informed in our community. So thank you guys. Yeah. Education is the best. All right.